You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. I'm Dr. Karen Stolzno. Since we started doing this show, I've received so many kind and thoughtful messages from listeners who say that they find Monster Talk to be a rock in a stormy sea. We've been told that our show has helped folk through real rough times, and if that's true for you, we're glad to have been of any help. Life is precious. Your life, your neighbors, your friends, your family. We're all in this amazing connected network and precariously placed in what appears to be a cold and uncaring universe. It's important for us to look out for each other. This introduction has nothing to do with monsters, I suppose, but I just wanted to say thanks to you listeners as well. Your messages, your notes, tweets, retweets, reviews on iTunes, your comments on Facebook, all the ways that you share this show with others and your thoughts about the show with me and Karen, they're all deeply appreciated. 2016's been a heck of a year with many ups and downs, and ugh, many downs. But I've got a few more things lined up for you before we end this year, and I, I wanted to say that in my mind, we're a family. I want to say thank you to my fellow monster talkers. In a time when the media is calling this a, a post-truth world, it's more important than ever to remember that fact-checking is not a partisan ideal. We can't rely on Google and Facebook to point out nonsense. Each of us has to be responsible for learning critical thinking and teaching other people as well. And if we don't, who will? I've got more to say on that, but not right here and not right now. For now, let's put those worries behind us and talk about a lake in Scotland that some say is the home to a mysterious monster. No, not that lake in Scotland. Not the one in the theme song, a different one. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Okay, as is frequently the case as we get near the end of the year, I find that I have to cut to the chase instead of giving you all the cool background info I want to before the show. In this episode, we have the return of Mike Dash, one of my favorite Fortean researchers and the author of the very fine book, Borderlands, which I'll link to in the show notes. I hope you enjoy our little Monster Talk. If you were giving yourself a, a brief bio, how would you introduce yourself? Uh, me? My golly. Um, I've, I've been associated with 14 times since the early 1980s. Background as a historian. Uh, those two things probably come together quite helpfully when it comes to researching stories of this sort. And uh, what's your really, you're doing, you write for National Geographic? Am I remembering that right? Smithsonian. Smithsonian, yeah. See, I'm not remembering that right. <laughs> <laughs> Cool, but I, I love your articles. They're so in depth, and um, in, in a time when people are always looking for like clickbait, listicles, sound bites. Yeah, your <laughs> your writing always goes deeper and, and has lots of citations, and it. it's just a it's just fun to read. And is it about important but obscure topics as well? Just obscure, I would say. Well. <laughs> <laughs> You could claim you could claim some importance for some of it, but mostly it's just 
interesting and obscure stuff. And the more obscure it is, the better I tend to like it. Um, and certainly I don't do um, sound bites because most of them are kind of 8,000 words long or something. I'm writing up, actually, my, my, tomorrow my main target is I have to write an article for the uh, Encyclopedia of Toxicology because it turns out I'm the only person who knows anything about a, an obscure poisoning scare that took place in Rome in the 1650s. And that's a typical example of the sort of thing I research, actually. Wow. wow. That's neat. So where do you do your research? Oh, well, I'll talk, this is the good thing about living in London. I mean, British Library is my, my second home, really. And that has nice. a pretty awesome collection. May, may I say, expect. you lucky bastard. <laughs> <laughs> you can, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very envious. That's, that's, I, I, I think I've mentioned, I don't know if I've said it on the show before, but I've, I've mentioned to my wife, I'd love to go to England. But if, even if I were going to go for like a week to just London, I would need two weeks because half of that time I would like to go to libraries and museums. And then, likewise, mm -hmm. right, right. So I, you know, the other half, I'd want to go see the things that tourists see. But I, I really, there's so many uh, undigitized opportunities there for the researcher. So yes, that's very true. <laughs> well, I, well, I guess we should get to the questioning. Yeah, Where were yeah, you so on the night? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're going to talk about a lake monster or a lock monster in this case. Um, <laughs> One that some of our listeners will have heard about and one that many will not have heard about. Um, mm -hmm. uh, this is the Loch Morar creature, uh, known as, well, it looks like Morag, but it, it's not Morag. We, well, it's a, Gaelic, it's a Gaelic word. I mean, we would pronounce it Morag, and Morag is now a, a fairly familiar Scottish girl's name, actually, but uh, the correct Gaelic pronunciation is Vorak. That doesn't seem that's like, that's like the Monty Python thing. It's it's uh, spelled luxury yacht, but it's pronounced throat warbler mangrove, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Typically British, if you like, and obviously Vorak is probably not the most feminine sounding name you could imagine either. But uh, no, it seems like a Viking yeah. name. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, do, do you know what it, what does it mean? Or <laughs> well, it, uh, one of the early sources I found on this translates it as Little Sarah, which I suspect is almost certainly wrong, but we can go with that if you like. It's, it's, it's spelled be. Sarah, but it's pronounced Rabulon. <laughs> <laughs> so where is this, this Loch Mora? Loch Mora is on the west coast of Scotland. So, I mean, if people maybe think in terms of its relationship to Loch Ness, which is obviously the... The thing that most people end up comparing it to, it is um, around about uh, 60 or 70 miles to the west of Loch Ness, on the, right against the, um, the coast just south of the Isle of Skye. Um, so this is a, an area of Scotland known as the Rough Bounds because it's by far the most inaccessible part of the Scottish Highlands, which in mm. themselves are fairly well known for being pretty inaccessible. Um, <laughs> so... So I mean, this is one of the interesting things about it. I mean, a couple of things apply there. For I mean, first, it has quite a, a significant local folklore tradition, which is quite unique to it. Um, and secondly, and, and this is the key thing, I think that you have to bear in mind about Loch Moor compared to Loch Ness. I mean, the whole point about Loch Ness and the reason why the Loch Ness monster stories got into the papers in the first place back in 1933, when the story really, to all intents and purposes, begins, is that. Um, you know, there was work going on creating a new road along the side of the loch. So it's now actually possible to drive pretty much the whole length of Loch Ness. And I mean, although some trees have grown up, so you can't see the lake the whole time. Essentially, it's extremely uh, close to civilization and indeed only sort of four or five miles south of Inverness, which is the capital city of the Highlands. So it's you know one of the, the problems one has in thinking about Loch Ness as the possible home of an actual animal or set of animals is how the hell does it hide? Because, you know, literally thousands of people are driving up and down this road seeing quite wide expanses of lake. Now, Loch Mar, as I say, is a lot more isolated than that. They're only about a quarter of the surface has anybody overlooking it at all. I mean, it's almost entirely uninhabited now, thanks to the Highland Clearances, which was when, uh, in the 18th, uh, 1800s, um, landlords uh, cleared a lot of the land of tenants so they could re-establish the land as, as deer forest, in other words, just for, for sort of hunting and stalking purposes, which was considered to be more profitable. So a large part of the population that existed on Loch Moor at that time left. Uh, most of them went to Canada, where, interestingly, um, a lot of the local folklore kind of repeats itself as a result. So, in fact, there's a, there's a one road that goes along two miles of the North Shore of Loch Moor, which is an 11-mile long loch. 
and the rest of it is essentially completely uninhabited. Um, so a lot of things could be going on out there that we simply wouldn't know about. Um, and in terms of it being a credible habitat for an actual animal, I mean, we can go on to whether or not this is <laughs> translation to, yes, there is an actual animal there later on. Um, there are many things that uh, go for it. I mean, not only the isolation, but the fact that the the other thing that Loch Ness is you know, relatively famous for is that the waters are almost entirely impenetrably black because of the huge number of peat particles washed down from the surrounding hillsides. So you can put your, you know, I mean, you can swim in Loch Ness um, and look down at your feet and you won't see them because it's so black. So um, aside from that, making it a sort of spooky, weird place, it also means that there's very, very little in the way of fish life in Loch Ness. Uh, whereas Loch Mar is completely clear, pure water and uh, you can see down... 40, 50 feet quite easily. And as a result, it has a much more substantial food chain. Uh, right. So there are a couple of you know, quite quite major differences that one would want to point to in terms of isolation and uh, the, the biomass as well. Does anyone ever swim in Loch Ness? It's pretty blooming <laughs> cold. I spent quite a lot of time in the in the 80s working with the Loch Ness and Morab project, a thing run by a guy called Adrian Shine, which is the main sort of investigative stroke scientific group looking into that area um, and it was way too cold for me to want to swim in it uh, and the same applies mm-hmm. to Loch Moa as well I mean you know the, the very the top couple of feet in a hot summer would warm up and everything else would be pretty chilly. Mm-hmm. I, I love Adrian's work and uh, he does have one of the most uh, spectacular beards in cryptozoology so <laughs> makes even Charles Darwin look like a bit of an amateur Adrian yeah he does. really does it, it, I, I'd love to talk to him but uh, yeah I've been I've been following his work since I was a kid and uh, yeah and, and and such a memorable character so uh, quick question this is really kind of an unsequitur but along the shore of Loch Ness the uh, um, there's the house that was owned by uh, Alistair Crowley. Uh, yeah. How do you? And then Jimmy Page. Well, and Jimmy Page. It's, and uh, is it is it Boleskin or is it Bolskin or how how is that pronounced? Uh, well, you, I've always said Boleskin, but I could easily be wrong. Okay. Is, well, you're probably more likely to be right than anyway. me. I mean, you know. So I. Throw Bob Lemingrove. I was just I was I've just started reading about Crowley a little bit lately because uh, I'm, I've become interested in. Um, the the history of uh, ritual magic and that that whole uh, sort of nineteen twenties uh, resurgence of uh, of uh, paganistic sort of uh, magical activity that happened in the UK and Europe in general and, and so while I was reading about it, I saw that Boleskine had burned in twenty fifteen and uh, I think more than half the mm. house w- w- was uh, ruined. And I, I was—I didn't know if they were going to put it back together or whatever. But it seems like a beautiful. So not only was it the house where Crowley performed ritual magic, but it's also right there on the shore of Loch Ness. And I was like, "How? What a cool place!" You know, Who so, owns it now? Um, it's privately owned, unless the insurance company took over. But um, I forget where the people were from. But it's a—it's uh, a family that owned it, and they were away. They were—it uh, was like right around Christmas time, 2015, and they left to go shopping or something, and then. The house caught fire, and by the time they got back, it was like I say, more than fifty percent gone. Um, mm. I, it's really quite damaged, and I'm not sure. Nobody was hurt, which is great, but and they don't think any sort of foul play, or you know, it didn't seem to be deliberately set. But I don't know if there's any effort to restore it because, from what I've heard locally, it's it's kind of a not a popular place because of all the legends about it. But uh, all right. Anyway, not really a monster story, but I am interested in it, so it may come up or, in another episode. You know. Or indeed a lot more our story if we're being Yeah, you can, again, as I, as I preface the question, non sequitur, right? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Sorry. So, an actual question. Uh, Loch Morar, uh, you're on because there have been sightings of monsters. Um, I guess we should start with what sort of sightings have been made and how far do these uh, sightings go back? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that's interesting to me. I mean, I have to say, I'm not really a cryptozoologist in this sense. I'm, I'm not really interested. I'm not very convinced at the, you know, with, with the, the concepts of, of sort of, you know, real dinosaur-like animals in any of these lakes. Um, but the interesting thing, the fascinating thing about Loch Moher is that it's one of only, there's probably maybe three lakes in the world where there's a sort of significant monster tradition that goes back. Uh, before Loch Ness comes onto the scene in 1933. The others might be uh, Okanagan and, uh, here's my pronunciation going again, Okanagan, I don't know, in, in, Canada, in Canada, in British Columbia, and Lake Sturgeon in Sweden. Those are the only 
two others that I'm familiar with, which have sort of substantial numbers of reports that go back before 1933. And you know, this is really important because Loch Ness made such a giant uh, sort of splash in the news after 1933 that it sort of pollutes and taints the whole of sort of lake monster afterwards. And in, in terms of the types of things that are seen, and then particularly the way in which you know the, the Loch Ness monster type of animal, the sort of long neck, multi hump dinosaur like animal, sort of tends to become the default for lake monsters. So one of the interesting things about Loch Moher is that there's probably at least 15 to 20 reports that we have that go back before 1933. And it's, it's really worthwhile talking a little bit in a moment about, you know, how those are sort of characterized and how they differ from Loch Ness. Um, but, uh, I mean, overall, probably, I guess we've got maybe nearly, I don't know, somewhere between 70 and 100 cases have probably been reported from Loch Moher overall. The earliest one goes back to about 1840, we think. Um, so it's you know, it's not a, a not just a couple. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And so from what I've read, it seems like some reports talk about a, a lake monster, and others seem to talk about a mermaid. So do you think people are seeing the same creature, or are these different creatures? Well, I think that this is, what we're probably seeing. I would say is a the, the um, a, a legend coming into focus almost. I mean, you're, you're right. If you go back to the very beginning. Um, the, the Loch Moher monster, if we want to call it Moher, whatever we want to call it, is associated with um, sort of the deaths of members of a local clan. It's a um, something. It's something which is seen as a sort of warning, a harbinger of, of something dreadful that's going to happen to one of these guys. Normally, they're going to die, or it's going to be a battle, or something like that. Um, and it's the the Gillies or Macdonald uh, people of the northern shores of Loch Moher specifically. Um, so you get. One group of reports, which are sort of a, essentially seen as almost a funeral barge, um, sort of black shapes on the water. But there is this second um, set of stories which do refer to the monster effectively as a, a sort of half monster, half mermaid type creature. It's capable of coming on land. It's capable of talking to people. There's one, one sort of legend about it coming and visiting a man in a, a glen close to Loch Moher, for example. So it's clearly not just kind of a, you know, a water animal in, in these early stories. Um, and there is a book which was published in 1906 by a, a guy called McDonald, James McDonald, um, who was distantly related to the relevant clan on the North Shore, um, called uh, Tales of the Highlands, which is the one where you find this sort of version of events showing the, the monster as a mermaid. Um, and he he dates this back to 1887 and, and says he's seen something on the lock himself, which he thinks must have been this thing. Um, and there is a second set of stories that are told at about this time. And uh, th- these have only come to light very recently because they exist in the collection called the the, um, the Carmichael Collection, which is a, a set of Gaelic folklore manuscripts that are stored in a university in Edinburgh. And there's a project going now to transcribe these. Um, and from those have come several of these early Loch Moher reports. And what's interesting about them is that there's there's two initial entries in the Carmichael um, archive, which talk about the first sort of monster, the sort of just a, an undifferentiated black mass, a sort of black lump is one of the descriptions, sort of rolling around on the surface. I mean, not really animal-like at all. And then a few months later, there's a second one, which is exactly like the James McDonald story. And so... One speculates that this guy has probably talked to somebody, maybe McDonald himself or somebody who knows McDonald, and got a sort of a second story trope from him. So um, you you have these sort of two quite different sets of stories in the late 19th century, which by the by the time Loch Ness comes along, they sort of solidify into just another lake monster. Mm. And I think that it would be a very good idea to go back and explore in as much detail as possible how these earlier stories sort of work and what they're for uh, in order to really understand what was going on in Loch Moher. Right. Yeah, I was, as a clarification, I'm trying to understand, are, are the oldest stories that you've found, are they actually alleged sightings or are they sort of folklore? Does the folklore predate well, the sightings, I guess is my question. Yeah, I mean, essentially, yes. I mean, what you start with is you know, a mass of stories which are, extremely undetailed and along the lines i mean you know i said i said earlier that the the first story dates back to the to 1840 and and we can date it by this because you know what we have is simply a, a you know a line in the carmichael paper saying you know, it appeared just before 
Ian Rudd, Red Ian, died, and we know that this guy died in 1840. But that's it. I mean, it's it's they're only interested in the fact that it appeared and then he died because it's a confirmation of the folklore trope that it's a, a harbinger of death. And so you would expect someone to die. And uh, there's a, a the, the most notable landowner in that area at, at the time of the turn of the century, the time of sort of Queen Victoria's death, was a guy called. Um, Angus Natrague, and, and again, I mean, he, he died in 1898, and the monster of Lochmore was seen just before he died as well. And so really all you are getting there is a kind of internal confirmation of a of a story which is uh, to do with it being a sign important, not and, and, and no interest at all in the idea of, well, this thing could be an animal or anything like that. It, it's completely um, differently uh, sort of situated within the sort of folkloric spectrum at that point. So, quick uh, additional follow up. So, from a uh, and this this is my ignorance, but I think it might be important from a historical perspective. I don't know what the nature of British journalism was in 1840. Was it? Uh, it seemed like in America in the 1800s, the newspapers they can be historically useful, but they also kind of mix in things that aren't true. With, with with the it's sort of a stew, it's kind of hard to pick out what's supposed to be legitimately actually factual and what might be an entertainment sort of narrative. Mm. Uh, is that a problem in 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 old British papers, or is that? Or, um, yeah. I certainly wouldn't deny. That, I, mean, I, I don't think there's quite the same tradition of sort of tall tale telling as a as a form of entertainment in newspapers as one sees. And I mean, I, I've done a little bit of work on. Some of these sort of you know early American airship sightings, for example. Yes, yes. Clearly, this is something which plays. You know, I mean, the, the tall tale telling is something which plays a large part in the spread of those sorts of stories. I mean, you know, the reality, as I mentioned earlier, is that Lochmore is actually so distant that there was no local newspaper in the 19th century. The nearest would be the Oban Times, and Oban is like you know 50, 60 miles to the north of Lochmore, or the you know the Inverness Courier, which is the paper that first reported the Loch Ness monster. Um, you know, covered that area, but I mean, none of these stories made the press at all. I mean, you you get them as I say, in, by by folklorists talking to people. Or there was a famous uh, monk from uh, Fort Augustus Abbey. Fort Augustus Abbey, of course, is right at the southern end of Loch Ness. Um, who uh, did a lot of work um, amongst parishioners in the in the west coast of Scotland and recorded stories from Loch Moran, Loch Shiel as well. Um, uh, because uh, you know he was the only person essentially who's in a position to to get this sort of stuff and actually put it down in, in writing. There's, there's no local um, written tradition of anything happening until, well, certainly not the 1920s or 1930s. You know, but what you do see, start to see happening around about the turn of the last century is as a result of the clearances and the establishment of sporting estates in the west of Scotland, you start getting outsiders and they start picking up on stories in the same sort of way. And they're, they're talking about it very much as kind of, you know, um, yeah, odd, odd, interesting bits of local folklore. I mean, the, the famous example actually comes from Loch Arcade, which is literally next door to Loch Moor. There's a, a connection, a glen between the two. They're about 10 miles apart, where um, Lord Malmesbury, who was actually the British foreign minister in the 1850s, had a, a shoot there and talked to one of his stalkers. And, you know, they were talking to him about the the, the local uh, water horse, Kelpie. Uh, you know, that there could only be one at a time they come in different lakes, but you know, there's only one in the whole of Scotland, and there's one seen in Loch Arcaig in the 1850s. And so he wrote down this story in his memoirs, which were published in, 19, in 1857. So occasionally you get these sort of outsiders, sort of bemused takes on Gaelic folklore. And uh, again, you're kind of seeing it through a rather distorted lens as a result, because they're you know, they're having it translated for them by some local ghillie and uh, sort of fishing uh fishing helper that is um and they're probably not really getting the full flavor of what the local people would have thought about all of this right and do you think there's any connection at all between morag and the loch ness monster or are they completely separate creatures well i mean this is the interesting thing i suppose about the 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 reason we're talking now Um, i mean you could say there are two um obviously from the cryptozoologist point of view you know, the, the the problem I have with the average cryptozoologist is they tend to kind of blunder in, grab whatever they think could possibly be a distorted version of a story about a real animal, strip it out of its uh, storytelling context and kind of, you know, look for anatomical features almost literally. Um, but the other thing you can do is say that, you know, that there's obviously also um, the possibility that all of these stories have their origins in Gaelic folklore and the idea of 
you know, the stories of water horses, water bulls, and all this. I mean, the, you know, the Highland stories are folk tales are full of these sorts of stories. And uh, you know, I mean, the Kelpie, which is something which you know, Loch Ness is often supposed to be. You know, you look back and people say, "Oh, well, there are all these reports of Kelpies around Loch Ness," and it's probably people seeing the monster. Well, you know, in fact, the Kelpie is a kind of a, um, a, a demonic figure in Highland folklore. It's a sort of demonic horse. Uh, which, when it gets, a, you know, say, hovers around the edges of locks, looking beautiful, with a bridle and a saddle on, and sort of lures young girls to get on its back in the second they're on board, they tears off and drowns them in the lock and takes them down to its underwater palace, and sort of, you know, they're, they're dead. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not a, not a, a, a monster really at all, but people kind of co-opt elements of it and just say, you know, strange thing on the shores of the lock. It must have been. Uh, you know, what we're seeing is a distorted bit of folklore, which is a real monster. So I think that one would want to upend that and say, you know, possibly what you're really seeing is folkloric stories that are getting turned into something which is a bit more deterministic at a time when folklore is at a low premium in, by the 1920s, 1930s. And, you know, all the things that we, we doubtless talked about with other guests, you know, the, uh, you know, so the the, the uh, animations of monsters in the Lost World films and things like that sort of start coming, and, and stories about dinosaurs, of course, di- and reconstructions of dinosaurs, all come in and start informing a new way of looking at these things. Yes, and and especially when, as you've probably heard me say, I, I'm fond of saying this, that when when cryptozoological creatures are derived from movies, I like to call them scripteds. And I am so I'm so <laughs> fond of that term. <laughs> so I, I, I I'm going to use this as another opportunity to spread it, get it out there, people. <laughs> uh-huh. So so these varieties of of sightings. I mean, they're, they're, we're talking about um, a lot of different. Uh, I want to say morphological patterns here. This is I mean these the, they don't seem to be describing the same creature in every story. Can you talk a little bit about what people are seeing as far as the physical characteristics? Well, we we can go through this a little bit. I mean, at the beginning, as, as I say, I mean, most of the stories are very specifically very vague. Um, black rolling <laughs> heaps on the black rolling heaps on the surface, shadows under the surface. Um, you know, sort of two, uh, a boat pulling two smaller boats, which of course a cryptologist would say, ah, that must be a three hump monster. Uh, but they're very specifically just described as boats. So, so um, yes, uh, you then end up, you know, by the 1920s, 1930s, with things that are much more like the Loch Ness Monster. Um, now, you know, I, I've sounded, you know, even more than my usual sceptical self so far, but I, I must stress that the other interesting thing about Loch Moher, which makes it very unlike Loch Ness, is that there's, it has, does have um, a dramatic history of very, very, very close-up sightings. Uh, which, you know, however sceptical one wants to be, I mean, it removes the, you know, the, the way in which one tends to deal with a lot of Loch Ness stories, if one is a sceptic, but, uh, you know, a humanistic sceptic, is to say, well, a lot of them are probably just mistaken. You know, they're, they're saying, obviously, Loch Ness is famous, for example, it's a classic natural wave tank. It's a sort of, you know, long, narrow lake, uh, waves from passing ships roll out, hit the shore, come back, meet in the middle, and you get this sort of long, low hump effect, which if you're looking at it from a shallow angle by, because you're standing on the shore, looks really quite dramatic. I've seen it myself, and you know it's very easy to understand why people are reporting dramatic, multi-humped animals, quite honestly. Um, now, what happens at Loch Moher is you, know, you get a lot of that is removed. I mean, the most famous of all the reports from Loch Moher is the McDonnell Simpson sighting, which dates to August 1969, where these two local Scottish guys, both very highly respected in the community, by the way, uh, were travelling down the lock on a in a small boat with an outboard motor on a fishing expedition, um, and they saw that a, a, a three humps uh, were sort of converging on their boat, and in fact, this whatever it was in their account came up, bumped accidentally against the side of the boat, and one of them had to fend it off with an oar. I mean, he literally pressed against whatever with an oar to try and force it away while his mate went and hurriedly loaded a rifle, which they presumably had on board to do a bit of poaching and sort of fired a wild shot in its direction. So, you know, I mean, you, you can't say that's a mistaken identity. I mean, you know, they're talking about three humps, a lo- you know, a head held low over the water. Uh, you know, they can describe its texture. They can describe the feel of pressing against it. So this is either you know, an out-and-out hoax, or, you know, they've encountered some sort of interesting thing. Uh, I mean, their own explanation for it, by the way, was a, was not a, a dinosaur-like monster, but a giant eel. 
Um, and there's another uh, report, actually, literally from the month before that, of a guy called um, Robert Duff, um, who was on holiday there from Edinburgh, who, again, was fishing. And, you know, this is where the, the clear water's coming, who's fishing in, in Meeble Bay, which is about halfway down the lock. And, again, not one of the parts of the lake that's overseen by anybody. And looks down over the side of the um, the boat, down 20, through 20 feet of water at the bottom. And there's this sort of what he describes as a monster lizard uh, looking up at him with... And he can see four legs, you know, digits on each foot. It's really quite clear. So again, I mean, you're you're not necessarily talking about a case of mistaken identity with cases that are that close uh, and that dramatic. And I think that's the other interesting thing about the Lockmore reports to me. Sure. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti, and I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So aside from these sightings, has there been any physical evidence that's turned up or any photographs? There's a few photographs. They're the usual sort of thing. They're not very different to Loch, Loch Ness, except they're not as good. But then, of course, we know the most Loch Ness photographs are fake, and that's why they're just <laughs> anything. Uh, again, I mean, you know, we, we talked, we mentioned Adrian Shine earlier. Adrian uh, started off um, at Lochmore because he thought that it was a better place to investigate. And this is back in the days when he was more of a, a monster hunter than he is now. You know, nowadays, he would very much like to be seen as a scientist, and most of the work he does is sort of, you know, studies of fish stocks and things like that. And it actually is you know, good quality scientific work. But back then, he was more of an adventurer and a, and a monster hunter. And um, the first thing he did at Lochmore was he built himself this tiny little sort of submersible thing, which is literally just kind of a pod which he could sit in. And he he, he sank it down in the loch uh, about 20 feet, which is an almost suicidally dumb thing to do, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the idea was that you would, he had this sort of viewing portal looking upwards, and he, he thought that the best way of identifying what sort of animal he was looking for would be to sort of sit on the bottom and wait for a monster to swim over him so he'd get it sort of silhouetted against the surface and he'd be able to see mm. lots of sort of morphological characteristics so he spent quite a lot of time sitting on the bottom of Loch Moa hoping for this to happen which it didn't uh, and when that happened he then uh, then his next step was to get a, a sort of glass bottomed boat and he did a survey of the whole of the the loch sort of down to about 20 feet so you know sailed around it's 11 miles long so he sailed around all 22 miles of shoreline up to about 20 feet out, looking in the hope he might find a carcass or a skeleton or something, again, without any luck. But, you know, those are the sorts of things that are possible in Loch Moor that are simply completely impossible in Loch Ness. Um, so one would have thought if, ena- if ever one is going to find the sort of physical evidence that would actually excite a cryptozoologist and, and interest an actual scientist, Moor is the place it's going to happen. So the, the lake is very deep. It's the deepest lake in Britain, in fact, yeah. Yeah, so that's, uh, but, wow. but how, how long is it? I mean, because, I mean, like... It's 11, mile, it's 11 miles long, which is half the length of Loch Ness. 
Okay. Uh, it's one th- and 1,017 feet deep, whereas Loch Ness is about 750 feet deep. So it's got about another 250, 300 feet on Loch Ness. Mm-hmm. Although that's only a very small part of the bottom, but it's, it's very, it is jolly deep. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very icy. <laughs> Well, yeah, so was it also, like, Loch Ness was uh, cut by glaciers, if I remember correctly. I don't yes. know. Is the same true for Morar? Well, I'm not a, not a geologist, you won't be surprised. No, no, no problem. I, yeah. I would imagine, that, I believe that to be true, but um, yes, absolutely. And it's, uh, uh, you, you, don't, you don't have the same sort of bottom characteristics as you do in Loch Ness, um, though, so it's been cut in a slightly different way. Um, and there's also no sort of large rivers flowing in. I mean, in Loch Ness... There's famous kind of two deep basins, and they're separated because there's a river halfway down that's been sort of pouring silt into the water, into the lake for ten thousand years, and so there's kind of a, a ridge is built up halfway down the lake. The lake, effectively, on the bottom, close to the sea, is really very shallow, and there are a few islands there, which is not a characteristic of Loch Ness, which is fairly typically deep all the way across. So, have there been any? I just want to say, have there been any of those sort of uh, sonar surveys or that kind of exploration of the lake where they, you know, I. I imagine there was easy. It was easier to get funding for Loch Ness because of its yeah. fame. You know, well, absolutely, and there hasn't been the same sort of level of investigation. I mean, yeah, both Ness and Moore were thoroughly surveyed by the famous bathymetric survey that went around this all Scottish major lakes in the between about eighteen ninety and nineteen ten, uh, and that's how we know how deep it is. Um, so that, but that was done, you know, literally by you know, by sort of chucking a weight over the side of a. A, a rowing boat and then hauling it back up and chucking it over again several thousand times. So it wasn't quite the sort of modern sonar survey type of thing. So you've uh, told us a little bit about some of the expeditions um, that have taken place there. Could you tell us some more about the various expeditions uh, that people have undertaken to find the, the creature? Well, I mean, this didn't really happen until the late 60s. I mean, the McDonald Simpson report, the, the one where, where the monster bumped into a boat, made it into the papers much to the annoyance of the two guys actually they they sort of vowed not to talk about it but they meant they had told some relatives and some one of their relatives told the papers um, and when that report came out the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau which had been active at Loch Ness for three or four years at that point um, got interested and you know again because of the physical characteristics of more a small group of people led by a woman called Elizabeth Montgomery Campbell got the idea that it might be more likely they could get a a, a, a quick result at Lochmore. I mean, this was the, the, the NIB had already begun to get a bit frustrated by the amount of sort of camera hours it was putting in at Loch Ness without getting any sort of real results. Um, and so the Lochmore survey began in 1969, 1970, 71. So it, was, it ran for about three years. Uh, and then Adrian Shine took over in the mid 70s. Um, but then largely for the fundraising reasons, I think that you mentioned he relocated to Loch Ness in the, um, in the early 80s. Um, so there hasn't been a significant amount of work done at Lochmore now for 35 or 40 years. Um, and it's very much uh, the sort of little sister from the point of view of actual <laughs> investigation, which, again, you know, in a way makes it much more interesting because, you know, the, the Loch Ness um, uh, thing has, has been so carefully investigated now that you can kind of, in my view at least, and I'm, I speak as someone who was involved in it, you can pretty much rule out uh, there being actual large numbers of large unidentified animals in Loch Ness. We just know too much about it now for that to be true. So the romance really is still over in Loch Mora where that work hasn't been done. So the, the ruling out process hasn't got very far yet. So I, I, I think from what you've told us so far, we could kind of um, split the sort of story of this place into uh, like folklore versus actual sightings. Like if you if you want to split it that way. There's stories, and then there's people actually seeing things. Um, now, a, a favorite hobby of the of the armchair skeptic is to say, "Well, what big animals exist there that might be mistaken for a monster?" Um, and I, I guess uh, it, it it's part of our due diligence to ask. I, I'm not saying that there's definitely a physical explanation for everything people have seen, but I am curious: are there things like seals or big otters or any mm-hmm. that sort of thing? Well, it's very, I mean, I guess the situation is relatively similar to Loch Ness. I mean, Loch Moher is even closer to the sea than Loch Ness is. The problem with Loch Ness and the whole idea of things getting into the loch is that the the River Ness, which flows from the sea to Loch Ness, or vice versa, I should say, uh, flows directly through the middle of Inverness. And you can drive into Inverness and see guys standing in the middle of this river 
in their waders fishing. So it's obviously not a very deep river either. Um, but it's about six or seven miles, I guess, long. Um, whereas in Loch there's Loch is actually one of its geographical curiosities. Is it's, it is home to the shortest river in the British Isles. Um, it's only just over half a mile long. Um, so it's literally up against the edge of the, the sea. There's a half mile long river connecting it to the sea. And I, I haven't heard any stories specifically about seals, but you would expect that that would be entirely possible that seals could get up that half mile long river and into the lake. The other thing, which, of course, which you could see in the lake would be deer. And uh, I mean, there's certainly some cases from Loch Ness that, uh, which almost certainly are sightings of swimming deer. Um, so, uh, and of course, you know, you have the, if you think about the head and neck of a deer, it's quite similar to this typical sort of head and neck quartz you quite often get from places like Loch Ness. So that isn't definitely another possibility. Um, and certainly there is a quite lively local tradition at Moa of you know, the, the loch being full of sort of overgrown eels as well. Not necessarily the sort of 30 foot super eel that you would need to explain some of these stories, but, you know, five, six, seven foot long eels. So that's, that's also a, a possibility. And of course, it's also, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, it's got a quite a large biomass and it's full of salmon. Um, so fish that swim sort of fast and along the surface and can create bee wakes and so on certainly exist there as well. That's, I, I love the idea of, uh, of these big mammals, uh, land mammals, sort of crossing bodies of water. I, I, personally, it's, I'm not saying this is the explanation for every sighting of caddy, the Cadborosaurus, but uh, the idea of a moose in the water and you look out and see a moose crossing, oh my gosh, that's it's so reminiscent of some of the things people have seen. So. Well, you look at the sketches, you're absolutely right. And uh, certainly at Loch Ness, one of the, the more dramatic sightings was by a woman called Greta Findlay and her son in the 1950s who saw a sort of two-humped, long-necked creature. Again, it was quite close up, actually. It was only 100 yards or so away from them, just offshore. And I mean, there's quite a lively debate about whether or not they could have seen a deer. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the thing they saw looked very deer-like, but of course it then sort of submerged under the water without apparently much of a struggle. So the... the the average um, sort of believer in the locket monster would say, "Well, how, you know, what are the chances of them being a deer just having a heart attack as as they look at it and then dying?" Which is that what you don't. So, so again, I mean, a lot, a lot comes back to uh, the, the, which is just so frustrating, isn't it? The whole kind of how accurately are we getting these reports and how good are the witnesses and how how credible are their you know sort of the, the eyewitness reports we're getting in terms of the accuracy levels. Um, given that one is not expecting to see something, you want to see something that's quite dramatic, maybe even quite scary. Uh, it, it's not ideal circumstances for a very uh, accurate, cold-blooded uh, eyewitness report, really, in, in any of these circumstances. So you've spoken about some sightings from the 50s and in particular the 60s. Are there any contemporary sightings? Well, there are a few, yes. I mean, again, one, one tends to hear about them sort of almost by chance for a lot of the time. Um, a lot of the local people are quite keen for Loch Moan not to become Loch Ness, um, especially in terms of, I mean, they quite like it being quiet and they want to attract lots of uh, tourists. So um, there is a local, not even a newspaper, really, it's kind of a community newsletter called Westward, which is published there, which very occasionally, uh, you know, uh, reports something along these lines. Almost always it's from, um, you know, a, a, a visitor, a tourist, some, normally someone who's gone fishing there. Um, and it's very similar to the sorts of things that we've been talking about, sort of, you know, a, a low hump in the water, something seen under the water, those types of things. There was one very dramatic case, which hasn't really been publicised very much, involving the brother of the guy who had the dramatic close-up sighting in 1969, a guy called Donald Simpson, uh, who claims to have seen you know, what's essentially sort of a land sighting, a monster coming up uh, into the lock from... Uh, the River Moa, um, which he saw while he was driving along the road, only about uh, sort of 20 or 30 feet away from it. So, again, I mean, that's one of those things where if you're a cryptozoologist, you get very excited by the idea that um, something could be coming in and out of the loch via the river, because that would explain lots of stuff about uh, how things aren't being seen more often, for example. Right. We talked about Kelpies briefly. Um, are there any other sort of water-based folklore that you're familiar with that would be relevant to these uh, sort of sightings? Um, well, I mean, the, we, we haven't really gone into this, the mermaid thing, but I mean, the, and mermaid is the wrong word for it, really. It is, it is a monster with a woman's sort of torso attached to it and, you know, 
and that's the mermaid part. So, uh, you know, with the sort of you know the white breast, long hair, and all of that sort of thing. Um, but the the idea was at the time, and this is the, the way the folklore puts it, is that you know, this is the the three elements of the of, of the morag uh, are supposed to be the three parts of a funeral service, where you have you know, sort of uh, one part represents the coffin, one part represents the grave, one part represents the sort of burial ceremony. Um, and so there's a quite a confusion of different sorts of bits of folklore being mixed into this. Um, but Lochmore is full of of interesting legends apart from that. Um, there's some sort of leprechaun-like legends about buried gold. And another one which I've, I've looked into in some depth, which I find a particularly fascinating story, is the grey dog of Meebel. Uh, Meebel is a little um, farm about halfway down the loch, but two miles down a river so it's not within sight of the lock and uh, one of the guys who used to live there back in the time of the napoleonic Wars, so about 200 years ago now who was supposed to have had um a, a faithful deer hound uh went off to the wars the deer hound gave gave birth to a, a litter of puppies after he'd gone and because he wasn't able to look after it they went feral and set up a home on a, an island in a little lock and up in the hills above Lochmore. and when he came back from fighting bony and went to fetch his his faithful deer hound these puppies had grown up by then to be sort of large ferocious dogs and they didn't recognize him tore him to bits and uh, he was buried in the local graveyard and the the uh, the bitch who he had had as his dog went and laid on the grave and was inconsolable in the sort of way that dogs are supposed to be and then sort of comes back later on as a sort of spiritual um again that's sort of harbing of death for people in his family and there are a lot of legends in Lochmore about people who've seen the grey dog and Meeble just sort of trotting along it's normally said to be about the size of a Shetland pony uh, and it sort of trots along um, alongside you while you're walking along Scottish uh, uh, mountain tracks all by yourself in the middle of the night and it's a pretty terrifying thing to encounter apparently. Is there a very big community of people there or is it pretty small no tiny i mean there's um so more village at one end of the lock has sort of 20 or 30 people there are literally half a dozen people now who overlook the lock and live in a, a couple of very small communities and that's it um, apart from sort of people who are just visiting for the day and going out fishing so it's literally mm-hmm. 20 to 50 people um which is very very different to Loch Ness, obviously do you think that uh these stories have been attracting more people to the area well, not many people. I mean, you'd have to be a fairly dedicated uh, cryptozoologist or fought into encountered the Loch Moir monster. And the, one of the things that very commonly comes up when you do get a sighting report is you're saying, I had no idea that there was supposed to be a monster in this lake. Right. And then again, you know, if you want to take that seriously, again, that's quite an interesting thing because the problem with Loch, Moir, with Loch Ness, obviously, is that everyone knows there's a monster in the lake and is half on the lookout for it and is liable to interpret almost anything they see in the water as a monster mm-hmm. as well as a result so it kind of is a pure um source of stories if you like as a result of that if you don't mind me reverting to the uh the folklore question stuff again i i uh i'm uh, the idea of uh harbingers of or harbingers of as we say around here of death that that sort of folklore comes up again and again i'm thinking of um um the spectral hounds as being one and then um the idea of um uh, what's the uh, there's a couple different female ghosts that uh, the, the the banshee would be one mm-hmm. uh, where you know there's sometimes brownies and yeah and they're associated with families oftentimes in the folklore I, th- there may be that kind of folklore in other parts of the world but it seems like uh, the northern UK uh, has a, a bigger amount of it or at least that's where I've run into it more have, mm. have, you, have you do you see more of that kind of story in your research? well I think you're right. And I think that, you know, I mean, what you have to bear in mind is, you know, we are talking about the Highlands of Scotland here. We're talking about a clan-based system where extended families exist in a much more real and concrete way than is typical in almost anywhere else, certainly in the UK and, you know, probably most of the rest of the world. And particularly, I mean, up, up till the 19th century, uh, you know, you are a member of your clan. You have a very large extended family, which is focused usually in a you know, 20 or 30 or 40 mile radius uh, with sort of sub-families, but anyway, you all have the same surname and so on. And so it's much, much easier and more likely that these sorts of stories will not only grow up, but also be circulated um, as a result of that. What can the the, the monster of Lake Mora tell us about uh, the nature of lake monsters in general? Is there, there anything it can tell us? Well, a couple of things. I mean, firstly, not all lake monster stories are a product of the publicity surrounding Loch Ness, and that is a you know, fairly typical 
sceptical position. So I think that it's important that we recognise that there are these two or three lakes where however different the reports are, there are reports of things in lakes before 1933. And that's really significant. I think that it, it gives us something to talk about, which is beyond the, you know, everything is founded on a hoax, a publicity stunt, a single dramatic story that gets exaggerated. Um, I think that you need to look a, a lot more carefully at local beliefs, local folklore, the way in which um, you know people look on these large, slightly scary, slightly isolated bodies of water, um, so that's that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is to is to say that you are looking here, as, as I say, I mean, a, a small number of interestingly dramatic stories. I've told a couple. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a third example. Um, a guy called Lord Glendavon, who's another one of these sort of um, sporting gentlemen visiting Loch Moor, again before the Loch Ness monster comes on, which is in 1931, out trolling on the the lock and suddenly his line gets taken by something which is heavier than anything he's ever felt on the end of his fishing line before and sort of dives down to the depths of the lock several hundred feet until the, it pays out the whole of his fishing reel and he comes back to land very very shaken and his his gilly tells him you know this is not something we should be talking about essentially so again there's a kind of mixture of sort of real animal local folklore going on there but also again a, you know it's a different sort of story you don't tend to get in most lakes physical uh, elements to these sorts of stories so you've got at least two or three of the the Loch Moir stories involve you know elements of I pressed against it I felt the weight of it on my fishing rod and so on and that is to the best of my knowledge unique so so there's something unusual about the Loch Moir tradition as well I'm not asking you to wildly speculate but at the same time I am <laughs> curious so what, what do you think people might be seeing I mean it sounds like they're seeing a lot of different things but for, the, for those stories that seem plausible, what do you, do you have any idea? I hate these sort of speculations because I'm so grotesquely <laughs> ignorant and not qualified to. Okay, well then, if you want, do, we uh, can, do it, but we I can mean, skip you, it if you want. I mean, it's, it's no problem. Well, you know, I mean, I, you know, my, the, I started off like most of us. I mean, I think we've had this conversation on previous podcasts. Even, you know, as an 11, 12 year old kid, I really badly wanted to believe some of this stuff was true. It'd be much more exciting, and I've gradually become more and more gnarled and skeptical over the years and Loch Moore has this sort of little beacon quality in my mind where it's one of these very few places where gosh there could still be something actually interesting going on there so so I think that you know for me the the, the reason I like I mean is it, the other thing I haven't really mentioned is it's unbelievably beautiful there I mean you really ought to go if you get the chance Loch Ness is actually kind of quite a grim place it's dark and it, uh, Loch Morris has a softer feel to it and the, you know it, the Highlands of Scotland obviously as you probably know are very beautiful and this is one of the most beautiful bits to it so the whole thing has a sort of romantic feel of it to me and uh, uh, and, and I, I kind of treasure that because it you know there's this little spark of my old childhood self in this sort of gnarled old skeptical hulk that I'm now dragging around in my 50s <laughs> um, and it sort of it speaks to me for that so you know it, it, it's a rather special place for me from that that point of view I first went there when I was like 14 years old and still wanted and able to believe in all this stuff and so as I say there's a little bit of a a young boy and Lochmore inside me somewhere is it there any if you wanted to visit there is it there anywhere any places to stay in that area well it's not i mean when i say it's isolated i mean it's you know, 20 or 30 or 40 miles from civilization it's not that far really especially right. in some some places in the u.s i mean there's a the local village malag is about 10 miles up the road at five miles up the road even and there are a few hotels there so and obviously you can get bed and breakfast and things like that around there as well so it's not not impossible i mean it's not it's not right. like a uh, 500,000 bed place but then on the <laughs> other hand 500 or a thousand people don't normally want to go to look more all at the same time mm -hmm. So it shouldn't now be they will. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get our numbers up a little higher for that to have an impact, I think. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's funny because you mentioned um, the more you research, the more skeptical you become. But, I mean, I, I'm, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I remember distinctly the feeling of, you know, believing that Bigfoot was out there, you know, just waiting to be found. And over the years, that's gone from... Bigfoot's probably real to Bigfoot might be real to mm, I really don't think Bigfoot's real to I'm provisionally confident saying Bigfoot's not real but am prepared to change that should a body appear. All that being said, it doesn't stop me from looking intently for Bigfoot when I'm driving in the woods at night. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, no, no, well, exactly. And I guess one reason I don't want to go swimming in Loch Ness is that however skeptical I am, I still 
don't like swimming in large deep bodies of water. I can't see what's coming up from underneath me. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, yeah, <laughs> I fully understand where you're coming from from that point of view. Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, the, well, the only other thing I suppose I would want to say in kind of in conclusion is that um, it, would, it would be... It would be interesting to to do some more work there. As I say, I mean, the Lochmar survey in the 70s did come up with quite a lot of evidence about the size of the the fish population. And, you know, to me, this was the sort of killer blow at Loch Ness. Was, well, actually, there are two killer blows at Loch Ness, but that was one of them. The idea that, in fact, the fish stock in Loch Ness is probably only somewhere in the region of 16 to 25 tonnes of fish, which sounds like a lot but then when you then multiply that up and you start thinking in terms of well what would a breeding population of monsters look like um you start worrying about there's just not enough food to support uh, actual animals that doesn't seem to be true of Lochmore, and i'd like to know a lot more about that and i would like to do more I was gonna say it's the, the it's the miracle of the lock and the fishes so. <laughs> I, i'd like to do more work on the whole you know surveying of the you know the, the clear water areas of the lake as well i don't think i can go quite as far as adrian actually sitting in little pee pod at the, under 40 people, <laughs> which i've made that's extreme the bottom of my garden that was a little bit too extreme for me so so i mean i think that the, i suppose the thing about lochmore in conclusion is hey there is actually somewhere there there's more work to be done and you know that that again is kind of unusual for me when, when i do research i tend this is one of the very few cases where I've ended up thinking, well, there's more work to be done as opposed to, OK, I've, I've solved that to at least my satisfaction. There is still work to be done there. Yes. Um, I okay. don't feel that I have all the answers I want about Lochmore, and that's quite unusual. And again, something to be kind of cherished because, um, you know, it's nice to have a at least a little. I don't know if I would even call it an element of mystery, but certainly an element of, it, of inquisitiveness about something that I've been interested in now for sort of 40 odd years and still has that little itch going at the back of my mind and you know i quite value that really what do you think you might find i don't know i mean i think that you know you've asked me to speculate wildly so i guess i might as well finish my speculation (laughs) you might find a large a large fish of some sort i mean i don't (laughs) think that's impossible um you know it could be uh, you know some people could be seeing large eels it could be a i don't know i mean people saying loch ness maybe a sturgeon that's adrian shine's view anyway and once you take out the the long head and neck bits of Lake Monster Report sturgeon are actually a surprisingly good candidate for a lot of the rest of the stuff. So, so maybe that. So, I mean, you know, that would that would be undramatic but interesting to me. I, Definitely. I, for wildly speculating, I would I would love it if they find a, a, a sort of like a giant angler fish that's evolved so that the uh, lure <laughs> is shaped like a beautiful woman, but when you get close, it gobbles you up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I suppose I'm, less I suppose likely. A wild speculation would be, hey, maybe there's a mermaid. In well, there is that. That, yeah. that would is be that wild. wild? <laughs> Find that evidence. <laughs> so, um, I, I think I've mentioned several times on the show that the, the, your book Borderlands is just just a tremendously well researched uh, collection of Fortiana. Uh, and big book. It is a big book, and everybody should own it. Um, is there any, and we'll have a link to that and uh, to your articles at Smithsonian and to your website in our show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about or promote? <laughs> Golly, um, n- not not from this point of view. I mean, I've, I've been so caught up in the writing of the, the history stuff I do that I haven't been writing a huge amount of Fortiana. I guess I should mention, if this is coming out soon, that I actually have an article in the new issue of 14 Times about something I haven't written about before, which is a the Antrim of Initiation at Bayer on the Bay of Naples, which is supposedly a, a set of um, a set of very mysterious tunnels um, dug into uh, the remains of a volcano, which um, might be something to do with a, a peculiar sort of 5th century BC con game where people tried to persuade rich passing merchants that they were able to take them down to the underworld over the river Styx and into a, a sort of cave where they would get a, their fortunes read by a civil and probably extracting very large sums of money from them for the privilege. Wow. So that, that, that's, my, that's my latest 14 times writing. Uh, quite a few of our listeners have asked if you've made any progress on your uh, Spring Hill Jack work, is there a chance that you've moved forward with making that into an oh, actual oh, published book? Yeah, I hope you weren't going to ask that. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know what? I've, I've been working on the, these uh, Smithsonian history articles so long that I've now basically I'm like three articles short of having a book of for the books worth of them. Sure. And I promised myself I'd finish that and then I'd do Spring Hill Jack 
that was two years ago and i keep getting distracted by new ideas for stuff so i have I've still got two out of the three st- stories I want for my book I've, I haven't actually uh, written yet. So the idea is that at some point between now and Christmas, I should finish that up, and that next year I should try and get back to Spring Hill Jack. There's about six months of work to do there, so it's kind of hard for me to imagine how I'm going to find enough time to do six months of work over any sort of relatively short period of time. When I say basically I need to spend another few weeks on Spring Hill Jack, maybe a couple of months at least, um, I'm hoping to do more of it next year. Was the I short for No, no, it's it's, it's terribly it's, pathetic excuse, which probably would bore the pants of anybody. No, but I think the I think the the end product should you be able to get it out. I think people are are really interested. They, oh yeah, no, I mean mm-hmm. I, I, I mean it needs to get done, and I'm now getting to the point of thinking bloody hell, I better make sure I write something before I drop dead. Actually, well, yeah, yeah, we don't don't be like George R. R. Martin. So <laughs> if that's your standard yeah. error, right? <laughs> so I shall try my best to make it happen. I've got some fantastically good stuff to talk about there as well, so I really, really don't want to lose it. You know, I mean, the amount of new stuff there is far, far more than anything else I've done. So I, I kind of have a an obligation to the the greater community to do something about it. I think. Great, right? So, Mike, we've had you on the show before, and you've spoken about your favourite monster. So we thought we'd ask you a variant question uh, on that uh, theme instead. Do you have a scary movie that you can recommend? God, you know something I'm really bad with scary movies um i tend not to watch them because i find them a little bit cynical and manipulative and i'm i'm the sort of person who doesn't like going to amusement parks because i don't like going on things that are designed to make me feel like i'm about to die Mm. and it's very similar with a horror movie so i actually am terrible at uh, recommending scary movies but i suppose the maybe one that's worth mentioning that you know some people it's probably not very scary but it ties in with another piece of research i've done uh, which is a film called the maze which goes back to the 1950s and is um, a version of the Monster of Glam story, which I should come and talk to you about sometime. The sort of, you know, the, the deformed heir kept locked up in a secret room uh, in a Scottish castle for yeah. years. Yeah, that would be a good episode. I'm familiar with the legend, so that would, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You, you think you could talk about it for half an hour? Oh, I could talk about it for longer than that. Oh, I've sweet. A okay. A lot of research on it. Yeah. <laughs> All outstanding. I, make a better, I mean, there, there's some good spooky stuff there, so that would make a good good episode for you, I suspect. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Okay. <laughs> we'll we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. As always, it's been great talking with you. Yes, I enjoyed thank it. You, Mike. I enjoyed it. I hope it was useful for you. I didn't feel like it was as focused as I wanted it to be, but uh, don't no, worry. No, that was really interesting. Actually, I mean, I think, and I, I mean, the listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, my, my feeling is that one of the reasons people like the show is because we're long form. We're not a super tight 15 minute, you know, podcast. We're, we're people with the, who really thought deeply about these questions uh, you know, talking sensibly about monsters, and I mean that. What's wrong with that, right? <laughs> Going into a lot of detail, a lot of history, a lot of you know side stuff. I, people like to learn new things, and uh, I know every time we talk to you, we're going to learn something new. So it's great. Mm-hmm, definitely, oh, it's been a yeah. pleasure. It's always nice to talk. So yeah, we'll do it again sometime. Monster talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Karen Stolzno, and I'm Blake Smith. You just heard an interview with Dr. Mike Dash about the alleged beast living in Loch Morar. We hope you enjoyed it. A link to Mike's book, Borderlands, and to his articles at Smithsonian are in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Mike's written several other books filled with meticulous research, not all of them Fordian, but well worth checking out. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. But if you want my opinion, it's a great time of year to donate to the nonprofit Skeptic Society before the year runs out. You can find details on how to make a tax-deductible donation at Skeptic.com. They did not ask me to say that. I just think it's a good time of year to donate to Skeptic or the Center for Skeptical Inquiry. Both organizations support the promotion of critical thinking, and that's something that we can always do with more of. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. 
A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Thanks again to all you generous folk who have signed up for the Patreon page and for the amazing generosity of the book purchases that you've made from the Monster Talk support page. We've got some great ones now to read through and to turn into episodes, and I really, really appreciate it. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you again for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content.